The reading today is from Acts chapter 3, verses 1 to 26. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at three in the afternoon. Now a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John, and Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold, I do not have, but what I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk, taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognised him as a man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in a place called Solomon's Clonclade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by your own power or godliness? We had made this man walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses to this. By faith in his name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has been given this given this complete healing to him as you can all see. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance and did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come over from the Lord and that he may send, send the Christ who has been appointed to you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. As he does not listen to him, will be completely cut off among the people. Indeed, all prophets from Samuel onwards, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days and you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers he said to Abraham through your offspring all people on earth will be blessed when God raised up his servants he sent him first to be blessed to you by turning each of you from your wicked ways this is the word of the Lord thanks be to God 
Well, very good morning to you, and thank you for joining us at our online service. My name's Rob. I'm one of the leaders here at St. Mary's. And uh, as we look now at this passage, it'd be really helpful if you could keep the passage open in Acts chapter 3. And uh, you will have been sent a service sheet, or if not, you can just download it from the St. Mary's website. But as we think more about this passage, uh, let's pray. Let's ask for the Lord's help. We thank you, our Father, for that reminder over these past few weeks that the Holy Spirit has been poured out on your church and that in the apostles we have a true and trustworthy testimony. And so, Father, we pray as we think now on this sign and what it means for us that you would speak to us, that you would give us understanding by your Spirit's enabling. And, Father, please change our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the big differences between the Christian worldview and the worldview of our day is the future. See, when it comes to things like life after death, uh, the transformation of our world, or ideas about the resurrection, Christians can find themselves in a very different place to what people think in the world around them. I remember a few years ago, I uh, was at Cambridge University with a few people uh, putting on some talks for the week uh, about the Christian faith. And uh, the one talk that got the most friction was the talk that spoke about the future and what will happen. I remember the speaker spoke about uh, the fact that when we die, we will be with Jesus and there'll be a transformation of us and our bodies and the world. And just as he's finished, uh, someone took the mic from the audience and said in a very deadpan way, are you serious? I mean, incidentally, he replied, yes, I'm completely serious. But the point was, that's how many people think. You hear ideas about the future, the resurrection uh, of the dead, of a transformed world, and we think to ourselves as a culture that this is a kind of superstition that we should have shaken off by now, uh, a kind of throwback from previous centuries where they believe these sort of things. And you'll know that as you try and explain the Christian message in the office, on the building site, in the Zoom call. You'll know that as you get on to this topic of what happens when we die and the resurrection and those type of things, you'll know that people look at you uh, the same way they look at the guy in the high street with the sign that says, the end is nigh. It can feel like uh, we are a bit crazy. Now, of course, as Christians, uh, surrounded by that culture, we don't abandon our belief in the future, but it's very easy, isn't it, for those voices around us to chip away at our confidence in it. Perhaps you find yourself asking the question, is it as true as the Bible, as much as the Bible says it is? Or is it, is it as good as the Bible says it is? And rather than the future being the north star of our lives, which should shape everything in the present, it drifts down and becomes something of just a consolation prize at the end of our lives now. But our passage today is all about showing us that the future is real, it is trustworthy, and it is a serious idea that can be taken very seriously in the 21st century as much as it was in the 1st century. Now, Acts chapter 3, which we're looking at today, is uh, quite similar to Acts chapter 2, in that both have some miraculous sign followed by a sermon. 
And both of the sermons talk about very similar things. They both talk about Jesus, and they both talk about his exaltation and glorification. But there's a different emphasis in chapter 3, which we're going to think more about this morning, and it's this. It's the emphasis on the future, how the, the, resurrection, of the Jesus, uh, resurrection of Jesus proves that the future is real and we need to respond. Now, just let me show you this. Uh, look at chapter, two, uh, chapter 4, um, verse 2, and you'll notice there that Luke gives a kind of summary of what's been going on, and notice how he puts it. He says, Peter has been speaking about the resurrection of the dead. And so there's lots of things in this passage in chapter 3, but right at the center, the beating heart of it, is this idea of the future and what will happen as Jesus returns. And we see three things here, which I want us to see this morning. First of all, it's real. Secondly, it isn't a surprise. And thirdly, it matters. See, first of all, it's real. Now, lots of people are going to respond and say, well, how do we know it's real? I mean, we haven't got any evidence. No one knows what happens after we die. But Luke wants to lift back the curtain and show us otherwise. Now, how does he do that? Well, it comes in this healing, which is in verses 1 to 10. Now, it's important to see what's going on with this healing. Now, uh, miracles in Acts are very rarely random. In fact, they're never random. They're always there to teach something and to show us an important aspect uh, of the gospel. And this one's no different. So what does it show, this healing? Well, the big clue comes in the response of the man in verses 7 to 8. Have a look at it with me. Uh, Verse 7, Peter taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. And notice this, he jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. Now notice, he's not just kind of stumbling along. He's not even just walking with them. He's jumping, he's leaping for joy. Now why are we told that? Well, you might think to yourself, well... It kind of gives proof that this miracle has worked, and that's true to an extent. But actually, the the word there for leaping is a very rare word. And Luke has chosen it because he's very intentional with what he wants us to see. See, that word, it's very rare across the Bible, and it it pops up in Isaiah 35. And on the screen, you'll see this uh, reading uh, from Isaiah 35. It's uh, It speaks about the future transformation of our world. And notice what it says. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Do you see? The lame leap like a deer. It's the same word here in Hacks. And so you can see, can't you, what Luke is trying to show us in this healing. He's shown us that this is the fulfillment, the, the first part of the fulfillment of this promise to transform our world and restore it to its right place. As this man who has been disabled, we read in chapter 4, for over 40 years, as his sinews are stitched back together, as his ankles finds strength again, as his brain kicks in and is able to coordinate his newfound strength, we get a glimpse of that new world that God has promised. I was on a Zoom call last week with my sister, and as you do on Zoom, you look in everyone's backgrounds, don't you, and check out which books and videos they've got in the background. 
And uh, I noticed when I was speaking to my sister that um, she had lots of squares of paint on the back wall. And I thought to myself, is this some sort of um, new uh, home decoration thing I'm missing out on? But then as I looked closely, I, I noticed that those different colors uh, weren't, were pretty rough. And I noticed that they were uh, really just test paints, uh, the little test paints you get in the pots. And it's, um, it's like here, you get a kind of test pot paint uh, for what is coming. See, just like you might paint a bit of paint on a wall so you can see what it looks like on the wall and so you can imagine what it will be like when it's finally finished. So here, the leap in the jump in the restoration of this man shows us what this future world is going to be like. Now, lots of us uh, in our culture, perhaps some of us listening this morning, will think to us as well, I'd love that to be true, of course, but there's no evidence And even as Christians, we can find, even as I talk about that now, it's hard, isn't it, to imagine when we look around our world, imagine that being the case. But actually, the way this healing is recorded for us shows us that it is true and trustworthy. Now, how do we see this? Well, because this healing is a real sign in real history. Now, lots of us, um, lots of people in our culture doubt the uh, authenticity of the miracles in the Bible. I was um, chatting to someone last week as he was repairing my car, and uh, we got in a talk about Christian things, and um, he was saying to me, well, look, you know, I accept a lot about the Christian faith. I accept uh, Jesus was around. I accept what he taught, but the miracles I cannot accept. Uh, I don't know what it was, some illusion, some trick, or something like that, but obviously they didn't happen. But actually, as we read the Bible, there isn't that sharp distinction. The same Jesus we read about and what he taught is, is recorded alongside the signs and miracles he did. And notice how Luke tells us about this sign. And Luke is a doctor, incidentally. See, he records it as a historical event. Now, um, how do we see this? Well, who's the sign with? Well, it's a person begging at the temple gate. Now, you might think to yourself, people who uh, beg, like this man here, uh, are pretty anonymous. But actually, the more you think about it, in a local area, uh, people like this are very, very famous. I I can think back to the guy in my old high street who used to beg people for for money and the stories he used to come up with, and everyone loved him, everyone got to know him. Or or the guy at the university who used to sit outside the the law faculty, uh, he used to say hi to me, he called me Boise for some reason, and you got to know him. See, actually, a guy like this was very well known uh, to lots of people. See, if you're going to make a sign up like this, this is the wrong person to do it with. Secondly, notice the man's condition. We're told that he's lame in verse 2. But not just lame, lame from birth. And as I say, he's over 40 years old, we're told later. So it can't just be some sort of placebo effect. It can't be some sort of psychological lift he gets. Uh, which kind of brings him to his feet. This man was well known by everyone to be disabled. Every day of his life he spent being carried by someone else, and you can just imagine all those childhood years trying to walk, all those years as an adult longing to walk into the temple like everyone else, but he can't. And thirdly, notice where this takes place. It's in Jerusalem. See, it's not some sort of gullible group in some backwater town. This is the cosmopolitan class. This is the intelligentsia. 
and he's at the gate of the temple of all places. This is the most uh, famous bit of Jerusalem. Uh, in fact, on your screens, you'll see there's a little model here of uh, the temple, uh, what it would have looked like. And um, we're even told the name of the gate. It's called the Beautiful Gate. And I, I've just pointed out with the arrow there that actually this is what uh, a lot of modern commentators think uh, Luke is talking about. Uh, this gate, apparently, it's written about elsewhere, was covered in Corinthian gold. It was majestic. Uh, and that's why Luke points out it's beautiful. See, we're told where it is. Uh, we're told about the gates. It's like you, uh, me saying to you, well, there was a miracle the other day uh, in the doorway between Festival Place and the, the shopping malls. And it's a sort of place you know you would go to, you could check out. See, if you're making up a sign like this, lesson one is use an unknown person in an unknown place with unknown people. But actually, this sign is done with a public person in a public place with the general public to see. See, there's only one explanation that fits, isn't there? As extraordinary as this is, it is a historical event. See, this idea of the future, this new world that Christians talk about, it it is not some wishful thinking. It's not some pipe dream. It is grounded in signs like this in real history and real time. Now, if that is the case, if this really happened, how does this help us with that question about the future? And that's what we come on to in our second point. See, the second thing to see here is that this promised future is not a surprise See, to modern hearers, the idea of the resurrection, the idea of life after death, of course, is difficult to believe. But actually, it shouldn't surprise us if we understand God and his workings through history. Now, if we find the whole idea of uh, the resurrection difficult to, uh, to understand, then we're not alone because this crowd does as well. Look at verse 12. Peter says, when Peter saw uh, this, he said to the men of Israel, Why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power and godliness we've made this man walk? You know, the crowd are stunned, aren't they? They they can't explain this sign that's just taken place. Their their mouths are open at the miracle. But Peter's point is that you shouldn't be surprised. Why shouldn't they be surprised? Well, look at who he attributes this miracle to. Verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. Now, when he talks about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's not just saying, this is the God. He's not just identifying him and saying, look, remember that God. He's saying that we have a God who made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if we know anything about those figures and the promises that were made to them, we know that they never saw the fulfillment of those promises. They saw the preview. They just didn't catch the movie. And so if we're to see the realisation of those promises, we're to expect some future transformation of our world. That was what Abraham, that was what Isaac, that was what Jacob were ultimately looking forward to. But it's not just that God's made a promise and they're not acted. He says God has glorified his servant Jesus. Now, the words there, glorified his servant Jesus, again come from Isaiah. Now, I know we're doing a lot of Isaiah this morning, but it's an incredibly important book. And in fact, it comes from an incredibly important chapter. It comes from chapter 52. And it's on the slide in front of you. It says this, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly 
exalted. Now these are some of the most famous chapters in the Bible. If we've been a Christian for years, we we would probably know them. Uh, They speak about a servant who will come to this world but not be recognized. People will turn their face from him, thinking that he's uh, nothing. And they will give him over to death. But Isaiah says that actually this servant, even though he's rejected by men and women, will be exalted by God. And Peter says, this has happened. Now, how do we know this has happened? Well, he gives the reason in verse 16. He says, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know, again pointing out the public nature of this sign, was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him. So as you can all see. Now, we think very differently, I think, to to names uh, as they did in the ancient world. Um, See, in the ancient world, a a name kind of represented something. It almost had a kind of power in itself, although I don't think that's quite the case. Um, My closest experience of this has been when I was back at college. Uh, When I joined college, um, I moved to North London from central London, and I needed to join a new snooker club uh, to play terribly uh, in a new place. And... um, uh, I uh, asked one of my lecturers where I could play, and he recommended me this place a few miles away. And so uh, me and another friend got in the car one Friday night and drove down to this snooker club. And I've got to say, it's the most uninvited place you can imagine. Uh, we walked down a long uh, kind of alleyway. There was a, a steel door in front of us and a buzzer system and kind of uh, pressed the buzzer and was let in with a grunt and, and kind of walking down this cor- corridor... And it was a bit like in the movies, you know, the old kind of westerns where all the heads turn in the bar. Because as we walked in, there were all these beefy guys sat there uh, enjoying a pint and, and turned around and looked at us two beanpoles walk through the door. And there was that moment thinking, what have we walked into? And then as the barman said, can I help you? We said, do you know Dan? And he said, of course I know Dan. Come in. I'll give you the table. I'll give you the table for free. I'll, you know, do you want a drink? And it, the whole demeanor changed as soon as we used the word Dan. See, that's his word, his name had some sort of power. I know it's not quite the same, but you get the kind of impression, don't you, that, that names can have a power uh, in that they represent someone powerful. And that's why when Peter says to the disabled man, notice what he says when he he, he lifts him by the hand. He says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now, what happens next? Well, the man gets up, and what does that show? Well, it shows that the, the person behind that name, Jesus, is powerful. And so he says in the conclusion, verse 21, he must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. See, this miracle proves that Jesus is now exalted into heaven, as was promised. And it also proves that future that he will bring in as he returns and transforms our world. See, this, this transformation of our world, I know it's difficult for us to kind of imagine in our 21st century, but actually, the moment we look back into the Bible and what it promises... The moment we look to God and what he's done, we realize it's not such a surprise. See, God always promised that there would be a servant who would come, who would suffer, 
and would bring in this transform world. Maybe this is a bit of a sticking point for you. Maybe you're listening in, you're thinking to yourself, well, I still can't see it, I can't accept this man was healed, and I can't believe in a future like this. But you've got to ask yourself the question, if there is a God, and if he is as he's described in the Bible, well, then this isn't a surprise. And almost you want to go back a step with your question and ask, did the resurrection of Jesus happen? Because if the resurrection of Jesus happened, well, we know that then he's glorified and he will return. See, we can't say we believe in God, we believe in the resurrection, and not then say that this future is coming. And even as Christians, we need to remember that, don't we? That the future is not a surprise. It's what God promised to do all along. See, the idea of the future wasn't some sort of tag-on on the Bible, something to to make us feel better uh, after death. It is what the whole Bible story is pointing towards. And this sign here, done in the name of Jesus, reminds us that is true and it is trustworthy. And maybe some of us need to just hear that again this morning. Uh, I'm in my 30s, and even in my 30s, I know that my body is not as good as it used to be. Uh, Things have started to sag, things have started to look (laughs) worn out, and uh, many of us know that kind of wear and tear ourselves. We feel, don't we, the pain of lost looks, or the fact that we couldn't do what we used to do, or the frustration at losing our strength. And it's hard, isn't it, to imagine that that process can be reversed as God promises, Or we look to the illnesses that plague our world, the the diagnoses that we have to uh, receive, the people we have to say goodbye to. Or we feel the pain of our world, a world which a new virus is able to wreak the health and economic havoc it is. And we think to ourselves, can this world be any different? Well, Peter says, look, remember, God has glorified his servant Jesus, and he will come to restore all things. Now, where does that leave us this morning? What are we meant to do with that information? Well, thirdly, we see here that if this sign is real, that if Jesus is really glorified, it absolutely demands a response. And that is exactly where Peter finishes his sermon. Now, the response here. Uh, we see Peter uh, encourage, is a bit of a surprise when you think about it. Uh, Why is it a surprise? Well, uh, Peter reminds the crowd of what they've done. See, look at verse 14. He says, you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the death. Do, Do you see the sad and perverse irony here? The author of life came to their world and they chose a murderer, someone who takes life instead. Now, I wonder what response you'd expect this risen Jesus to have. I love um, watching films where, uh, thriller films where the kind of main character goes to get revenge on all his uh, enemies. I don't know if you've ever seen a film like Taken or Taken 2 or Taken 3. They're exactly the same, to be honest, just with different characters. Uh, You think in those films that the, the baddies have got the upper hand as they kind of take something uh, from the main character. But then you find out that the main character is this real tough guy, and he's got all these kind of powerful uh, things he can do to people, and you spend the whole film kind of cheering him along, hoping that he'd get revenge on all those enemies, all those people that have wronged him. And Jesus here has more than 
every right to take revenge. He came, he did nothing wrong to his people, he uh, offered them life, and they chose to uh, crucify him instead. But what's Jesus' response? Well, he extends not the sword, but the hand of mercy. Look at verse 19. Peter says, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. In fact, verse 19 is incredibly precious and incredibly helpful because it contains what being a Christian is in kind of miniature form. See, it starts with repenting. It's not where you grew up. It's not the family you were born into. It's about making that decision for ourselves to change our minds. That's what repentance means. It means to turn back to God. It means to to not go in the same direction, to, to not live life without reference to God, but to turn and to have God as the soundtrack of our lives. And notice what verse 19 says. It's very wonderful, this, isn't it? What it says, if that happens, that your sins will be wiped out and times of refreshing may come from the Lord. See, that that verb for wiped out there, uh, it comes from uh, the idea of wiping ink off papyrus. Now, way before um, email, uh, we had uh, paper, you might remember that, and then before paper, we had uh, a long time ago something called papyrus. And papyrus was great, it was a Uh, it was um, what most of the Bible's written on. Uh, But the problem with it is that the ink didn't kind of soak into the papyrus. Uh, It's a bit like, um, you know, writing on the whiteboard with a kind of felt tip. It kind of just sits there, and you know as soon as you touch it, it's going to smudge. And so what people did was to get a wet cloth and just wipe the ink off the papyrus, and then you could use the papyrus again. And do you see what Peter's doing? He says, look, if you turn back to God, your sins will be wiped off like the ink on the papyrus. And he says, times of refreshing will come from the Lord. The, the word there is the idea of times of cooling, of, of relief. I remember I spent some time in Uganda, and uh, because it's quite a, we, I was at a Bible college and it was quite a formal place, we had to wear suits. And uh, I, for some reason, packed a suit made of war, and it was absolutely sweltering. And, and, and I remember being so hot one day that I was going to melt and coming into the main hall and on the table was a whole uh, selection of fizzy drinks that had been in the fridge uh, all day and I just remember the relief of tasting this drink. And that's what Peter says, times of refreshing will come on you. That doesn't mean life is going to be easy, it doesn't mean that suffering will never come, but it does mean there is an immense liberty and freedom in knowing that our sins are wiped out and knowing that that future day where Jesus will come and restore everything in our world is coming. And it may just be that some of us listening in this morning need to respond to that invitation. Maybe you've thought about Christian things for a while, you've thought about Jesus, and as you've looked at him, you've realized that you have misunderstood him, that you need to change your mind. And maybe you think that all those kind of reservations you had have slowly dissipated and and maybe you need to turn to recognize Jesus for who he is. Well, Peter's invitation to this crowd is an invitation that extends to all of us. Repent, turn back, and your sins are wiped out and times of refreshing 
will come from the Lord. And perhaps others of us this morning, just we are Christian, but we just need to be reminded of that. Perhaps we worry about the future because of our sins, and we, we think to ourselves, is it enough? Is it enough just to trust Jesus? Am I going to be okay on the last day? Well, Peter says, if you've repented, if you've turned back to God, because of the work of the Lord Jesus, your sins are wiped out. And for all of us as a church, we need to remember that the future and how confident and the confidence Peter has in it is a confidence that we should share as a church community. See, we cannot say that Jesus has risen from the dead without then saying he will come to restore our world. And perhaps that message is needed to be heard and proclaimed more than ever. See, I know it's difficult. I know we live in a culture where these things are quite difficult for people to to understand and to, to accept. But actually, the Bible gives us immense assurance that as difficult as it is, the future is assured because the Lord Jesus is glorified and he has given proof uh, in this man. See, we need not doubt God's promise of the future because Luke shows us it is real, it's seen in the sign. It is not a surprise. God has promised it. And it matters to all. Let's pray. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and times of refreshing may come from the Lord. We praise you, our Father, for that news that the Lord Jesus has been glorified and will return to restore his creation like he does in this uh, healed man. And we pray for us all, Father, that you give us a deep assurance of his work in this man and an assurance of that work which is to come in the future. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.